Hi, everyone. Um, so I wanted to tell you, first of all, about um, something that happened to me last December, which I think is an anecdote which kind of really illustrates that space between online and offline reporting that we're trying to talk about tonight. So um, basically, um, it happened in December, but I have to take you back to last summer, last July, when the Syrian army um, managed to cut off the supply lines into East Aleppo to really talk about what happens to get to that point. So I'm sure you're all aware of what happened last year, but it was a really grim situation for everybody involved. Um, there was very little food and medicine, prices for stuff absolutely rocketed, and there was little electricity and running water, and to add to all of that, you also had the Syrian government and their Russian allies also bombing this really quite small area which had a huge density of civilians inside it. So from a humanitarian perspective, it was really awful and needed reporting on, but also because Aleppo was the last urban stronghold that the rebels had in Syria, we all knew that when that city eventually fell, because that's what we've seen time and time and again, that's the regime strategy, it was going to have a big impact on the course of the war and it would mean something. It would have huge implications on a geopolitical level as well. But the problem was, um, at least if you were a Western or English language media journalist, you couldn't physically get there and do any reporting on it. Um, there were loads of reasons why that was the case. It was very dangerous, and the Syrian government is not a fan of giving visas for anybody they think isn't going to write stories that will be sympathetic to their side in the war. So access was basically pretty much impossible to get. And what I found that meant, um, I've reported on the Middle East for a while now, and you do kind of, if you're not in a physically in the same space as people, you do end up kind of talking to people on WhatsApp or on Facebook Messenger or on Twitter or whatever medium it is because, you know, back in the day it would have been a phone call or an email or a fax, I don't know, a telegram, depending on how far back you want to go. But for us in this day and age, it's basically WhatsApp. So I reached out to the few activists that I knew were inside the city who were using social media in this really savvy way to get their story out from inside the siege lines out into the wider world and after talking to them for a bit they put me in touch with other sources and other contacts and that network kind of grew and blossomed until I had you know this map of the area in front of me on my desk and I could literally point at it and go oh well I know you know this person who lives in this neighborhood and Zaina lives in this neighborhood and so and so lives in this neighborhood and I you know I was I knew what that community looked like from an online perspective, which was really weird. I never really experienced that in a place so dense and so cut off in other ways. Um, and of course, because if you're reporting on something and it's only online, you are only getting one side of the story, right? And that's what a lot of journalists were really heavily criticized for reporting on the siege and on the fall of the city because they were relying on these sources whom the Russians and various trolls online would be like, but, you know, they're actually Al-Qaeda operatives. They're not operating freely. They're being told what to say, and they're sending you a line. And you're not physically there, so you can't check. And that is a fact. That was very true. But I at least did my best to kind of triangulate 
who was sending me messages and what their um, agenda was. And I think somebody that is a really good example of that is Bana Alabet, who was the seven-year-old who had a Twitter account. She's now world famous. She's got asylum in Turkey with her family. But she tweeted throughout the siege about what it was like to live there with the bombs falling and how worried she was about her brothers and how she wanted to go back to school and how much she missed it. So she became kind of a lightning rod for all this criticism and this kind of focus point for this type of reporting, which I don't think we've really seen in any other conflict before. And as these, wars kind of, as these wars kind of go on, I think we'll see more and more of this relying on these sources. But in Barna's case, um, I initially didn't really want to report on it because I thought, you know, she's a kid. She's being used as a political mouthpiece by people, you know, she might not even be real. So I, but interest was growing. So I reached out to her mum and we arranged a Skype interview. And at the same time, I was talking to the other people I knew in the area and I was asking them, do you know this family? Um, the dad is a lawyer. Um, they say they live in this neighborhood. Barney used to go to this school and people were getting back in touch with me and they were saying, oh yes, actually, you know, my daughter was in school with Barna or I don't know them, but here's a number of a neighbor who does live on their streets. So, you know, talk to them. If you want to know who they are, talk to them. So triangulating all those different sources, um, I did end up, you know, I was quite satisfied that they were who they said they were and they were, it was a real account. And they were a family that I was very, very worried about when the ground forces moved into Aleppo in December. So the city was falling, it all happened quite quickly in the end. And I realized I was looking at my phone one night and I was waiting for it to buzz and for it to ring and for all the people that I normally checked in with to tell me what was going on, um, none of them were getting back to me. It was just nothing, radio silence. And it made sense in a way, because these people knew that the government forces were coming in and they were worried about um, people reading the messages on their phones and knowing they were talking to journalists. So a lot of them destroyed their phones, destroyed their SIM cards, shut down their accounts, that kind of thing. And yeah, basically tried to pretend that they hadn't been talking to anybody in the outside world whatsoever. But for me, sitting there on the end of this phone, I just remember thinking, I don't know what's happened to them. I don't know if they're dead. I don't know if they've been arrested. And all I want to know is that that was the moment where I realized that I never met any of these people, but I spent six months building up relationships with them. So you're talking, you know, birthday messages and photos of their kids and in-jokes. And I realized that I had this very real connection to a lot of these people despite the fact that I'd never met them. And almost all of them, in the end, did get out of Aleppo safely. Most of them are in Idlib, but not everyone. And it's very weird to feel like you're mourning for somebody that you've never actually met. They're not a real person in your life, but to all intents and purposes, the way I personally felt about this, that that's how you can make these connections now. So. Yeah, it's, it's funny how quickly you can feel like you know somebody, but at the same time, you never really get 
a real sense of a person or a place unless you go to it. And I'm a journalist, you know, journalism is supposed to be on the ground witnessing what's happening to relay it to other people, seeing it with your own eyes. Um, that's not always possible. And I do think tools like WhatsApp are really revolutionary these days because you can talk to an activist in Iran or in Egypt or in Saudi Arabia and they can tell you things on these encrypted systems that they would never have been able to tell you before. It's really opened up these places a lot. So Saudi Arabia in particular is somewhere that I felt like I knew quite a lot about, but I got the chance to visit for the first time earlier this year in April. And I realized that even what I thought I did know from other media from documentaries and online and from talking to these activists that I've been trying to reach out to for a long time, none of it really made sense when I got there. So we're talking immediately. Um, I remember being on the plane from Istanbul to Riyadh and I'd borrowed an abaya from a friend here in Beirut. So the, you know, floor to, from neck to floor, like black cloak that women have to wear there. And I remember sitting on the plane and thinking, I don't actually know when I'm supposed to put this on. Was I already supposed to put it on before when I was at the gate? Do I put it on when we enter Saudi airspace? Do I put it on when I get off the plane? This is really awkward. And I was like looking around, trying to look at the other passengers to kind of gauge whether they were doing the same thing. But everybody was already quite conservatively dressed. So I just had to kind of wing it and go into the, the bathroom of the plane and just put it on and like shuffle out and hope that nobody noticed what I'd done. And I couldn't get the headscarf to stay on, and I've been trying to fix it with, with hair grips and stuff, and none of it was working. I just, I must have been quite amusing to like all of the young men who were actually processing passports and visas. They were clearly quite, they didn't really know what I was doing there. Like one of them straight up asked me, he was like, right, so why are you coming to Saudi Arabia again? For what reason you don't seem to really know what you're doing? And I thought, okay, well, this is a great start, but never mind. Um, but when I did get out of the airport, I managed to meet with um, the activist that I had been planning to go see for some interviews. And I was kind of nervous on the way to go do it. It was really strange. I, again, the only thing I can really think of that's kind of analogous is when you arrange to go on something like a Tinder date. So you think you know somebody, you've got a sense of who they are, you know what they look like. But when you actually meet them in person, um, that can be completely different. And a lot of what you thought you knew about them or the way they have presented themselves online is maybe not the case. So, yeah, it was a bit, it was, it was strange to actually, you know, meet these women that I felt like I knew quite well at this point, but realized we were kind of starting again at that point. Um, and they were doing the exact same thing about me, I could tell. Like, I was trying to figure out if they were really who they said they were, and they, you know, I was also wondering at the same time, is my online persona and the person that I say I am and the way I present myself really the way I am in real life? Is this how they see me? And I think it went quite well, um, and it did deepen our ties, and it meant that I got a much better understanding of the context in which they operate and they have to do their activism, and those kind of physical boundaries, like not being able to use one entrance of a cafe or sitting in the right side 
or even the way men and women have to sit in cars is all just their physical barriers to how people live their lives that you would have no understanding of unless you physically try and do it yourself. It's, it, was, it was really interesting. Um, so at the same time, um, it really showed me that you can be very blinkered when you're only looking at things online. There is something about the way we communicate and search for things with the internet. We expect to be able to get and find whatever we want immediately because it's at the other end of a Google search. And you do that a lot with sources as a journalist. You're writing about a certain issue and you want to be able to talk to X person who's experienced Y thing or they live in a certain area or there is something specific that you have in mind that you want to talk about. And I got a really interesting reminder that sometimes the best stories and the best sources who can help you out the most are not the people that you think that you want. They're the people that when you've opened your mind to a context and you meet them in real life, it's a very different situation. Um, that kind of happened to me in May when I was in northern Iraq reporting on the response to the Mosul campaign, so uh, a lot of refugee camps and that kind of thing. And at the end of the week, I went to a party that was hosted by somebody who worked for the UN. And it was loud and it was drunk and it was on a rooftop. And there was a bonfire and people waving Iraqi flags and Kurdish flags. And it was, it was very, very drunk by the time I got there at midnight. It was very leery. And I didn't really know anybody. So I got chatting to a few girls who were standing next to me. And at one point, I, I asked this one young woman who was probably about the same age as me, a little bit younger. She had this amazing, flowing, brown-black hair, like, all the way down to her waist, and she had a Kurdish headscarf on. And I asked her, you know, where are you from? And she said, Afrin, which is the Kurdish canton in northern Syria. And I just stopped, and I went, really? Excuse me? Because relations between the Iraqi Kurds and the Syrian Kurds aren't very good at the moment and crossing the border can actually be really difficult if not impossible sometimes. So I was quite surprised to find this um, Syrian woman from Afrin just kicking back and having fun in Erbil. So I said, oh, right, okay. Um, what are you doing here? And she told me, um, oh, I'm on leave. And I said, on leave from what? And she said, oh, from the front line. At which point the pieces start connecting in my head, and I'm like, oh, wait, are you a YPJ fighter? Like, are you part of the, the Kurdish women, women's protection units who are doing a lot of the fighting against ISIS and Raqqa and, and other areas? And she's like, yes, 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 I am. But I'm on leave at the moment, and really, all I really want to do is find some vodka. And they appear to have run out, and I think that's what we should do tonight, is we should just go find another bottle of vodka, which we did. Um, and at the end of the night, she was like, oh, yes, I mean, you had all these questions for me about what it's like to be on the front line and where I'm from and all that kind of thing, and I don't want to talk about it now because I'm having fun, this is my night off, but here's my WhatsApp, here's my phone number, and if you want to chat, we can chat on that. So I took her number, and I said goodbye to her and her friends, and I sent her a message a few days later, and now I'm in this WhatsApp group with um, this woman and two of her friends that I didn't meet. And they're all back on their duties on the front line. And 
I'm kind of just checking in with them, asking, hey, what's going on today? What are you up to? And I'm looking for a report on where the front line has moved to or what advances they've made that day or whether anything has gone wrong. And what I'm actually getting back is selfies and pictures of cute dogs that they've met on the front line. And should I wear this headscarf today or that headscarf today? And, but it's great. I mean, I basically feel like similar to a lot of the other activists that I've spoken to in my career, at least in this part of the world, and kind of building up a relationship with them. And if she thinks this dog on the front line is an important part of her day, then it's an important part of her day. And, you know, she's a source and I'm a journalist and I need to kind of, it's great because I get this context that I would never get if I was just asking the boring questions and not letting her speak herself and show me the things that she wanted to show me. So, in conclusion, um, I think it can go both ways when you're talking about online reporting. Um, it can perpetuate narratives that are maybe not accurate and only one side of a story, and it can amplify fake news in a lot of ways. But if you're using it right, it can provide context and open doors to you that you would never have been able to access before. And as Hugo said at the beginning, um, it's the internet has revolutionized how we do everything, let alone how journalists work. But I'm going to continue using it both personally and professionally, and I guess we'll see how it goes. And, but at the end of the day, what I would really, really like to do would be to meet those Kurdish girls again and physically somewhere safe when they're done with their frontline duties and nothing's really ever going to make up for that until we actually get to that point. So that's what I want. WhatsApp's not a substitute for it.